Buy with Rob is your best choice when purchasing your new home in the Puget Sound area. Call 360-710-9425 today and get started on the best home buying experience you will ever have. Go to buywithrob.com today. Hello? Podcasts are verbal narcissism for ugly journalists. Hello, can I talk to Mr. David? Dave Bowman? Approach and identify. Hello? In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in the city of Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States. Over the next four months, they would debate, discuss, argue, and refine the first document of its kind in all of history, an attempt to show that men can rule themselves by law. This is the story of those men and those times. This is Constitution Thursday, a time we set aside to read, discuss, study, debate, and learn about the Constitution of the United States, what it meant when it was written, why it was written that way, what it means now, and how it affects our lives each and every day. Here's how you can participate. The text machine is area code 209-565-DAVE. That's 565-3283. The email address is dave at thedavebowmanshow.com. And on the web and social media, just search for Constitution Thursday. Well, good morning, good evening, or good afternoon, wherever you are, whatever you do. A lot of things happening in the world today. Most of them are far beyond our control, you might say. So perhaps it's time we took a pause and thought about life and thought about the laws of gravity. Double jeopardy. Constitution. Constitution Thursday. Politics and for the news. Don't touch that dial. Just try to hear me out for a while. The year was 1820. I know, that was a long time ago. And a gentleman who lived in the state of Pennsylvania was convicted convicted of breaking a law in Pennsylvania. What had happened, you see, was the War of 1812 had happened two years before, and he had been one of those people that decided, this is crap, I'm not doing this. See, you thought it was all in the 1960s. <laughs> nay, nay, nay. He decided he didn't want to participate, and so he refused to report for militia duty as required by Pennsylvania law. Of course, he was convicted of that. And then, in 1820, the feds decided that they were going to charge him with the same crime. Now, in 1820, things were a little bit different, but he was convicted as well, and he appealed that all the way up to the Supreme Court. It was one of the first cases of what we call double jeopardy, the idea that you can be charged twice for the same crime. The Constitution very distinctly says, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be put twice in jeopardy of life or limb. Fifth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. Hey, everybody, it's me, Dave. Glad you're with us today on a... what is shaping up to be a beautiful outside Constitution Thursday. It's supposed to be 75 here today. I don't know where you are, but here that's a little unusual. But we'll take it. I will, uh, I will freely admit that I am a disorganized mess this morning. It, it's been, it was kind of a weird night last night. Uh, been, he, uh, he, he, we, we make him start reading at eight o'clock and we make him read for an hour and he wanted to read more. Normally it's our, it's everything you can do to keep him to read for an hour. Uh, but he, he wanted to read more last night. So we stayed up a little bit later reading. And of course that's time that I'm supposed to be doing my stuff. And so I wasn't. And then this morning I got up and, uh, Thought, well, I'll have time to get everything, you know, organized this morning. But then uh, some some stuff happened. My wife needed to register for a conference. And as a complete aside that has nothing to do with anything, if, if I were a gigantic organization that that dealt with, you know, a, a huge group of people that are in a profession that has conferences and continuing education, I'd, may, I'd sure make my website a lot better. But anyway, she couldn't figure it out. And so we had to fiddle with that. And then by the time Ben, then it's time to go to Ben to school. So I, and then, you know, everything else that's going on today. So it's kind of, it's kind of discombobulated, but this is something that it, it relates in a kind of a tangential way, but you'll see where I'm going with this when we get towards the end of 
of where we are. And this might be a little bit shorter show today because I've got other things that are happening and I'm waiting, sitting here waiting for an important text uh, that will initiate the next sequence of my day. So if that comes in earlier rather than later, I may cut this a little bit short and I apologize in advance for that, but we'll get through the gist of what we have to say. So I was telling you this story at 18, 1812, 1820 is actually when the second case uh, made it to the Supreme Court. Uh, the feds had charged this man with violation of the, the Militia Act. And the reason was uh, he had refused to report to the War of 1812, Pennsylvania. Um, he, what you got to understand about American history is we tend to think of anti-war activism as something relatively new, uh, certainly mainly in the 1960s, because that's, that's our generation. That's our, well, for me, it was when I was a kid. For some of you kids, it was when your parents were kids and maybe even your grandparents. And so there's a physical connection to it. You've heard the stories. Plus, it was television era. So you've got Peter Coyote narrating documentary after documentary about how the 60s anti-war effort impacted the Vietnam War. And then, of course, subsequent to that, we've seen other organizations try to emulate that. They have not been as successful because, as it turns out, the government learned its lesson and in my opinion, took steps to make sure that those things would not be as effective anymore. Be that as it may, the truth of the matter is is that anti-war activism has been a huge part of American history, going all the way back to the War of 1812. In, 19, in, in, in the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus. He was throwing people in jail left and right for being what he considered to be or what the government considered to be Confederate sympathizers. And it didn't matter if it was just you walking down the street with a with a stars and bars belt buckle on, or if you were the editor of a major newspaper. <laughs> Didn't really care if they thought that you were a Confederate sympathizer. Slam, bam, off to jail you went without any recourse in the whole thing because the writ of habeas corpus had been suspended by the president. To wit, that's the only time that that's happened in the history of our country, although in 1798, of course, Congress passing the Alien and Sedition Acts, which, you know, kind of... We had the quasi-wars with France and Britain, and we had the Barbary Coast Wars, and there were people who objected to those. But if you criticize the government, well, we'll just throw you in jail. And, of course, that led to some some blowback as well. In 1917, when the United States entered the First World War. Now, today, as we wind down the commemorations of the 100 years, 100 years since the First World War, this November 11th, Veterans Day, will be uh, the 100th anniversary of Armistice Day. And we tend to, we have this vision now of World War I, 100 years on, that is very patriotic, I guess. Everything from Black Jack Pershing going to Lafayette's grave and proclaiming Lafayette, we are here, to the movies that you see that are based in World War I, the, even the World War II movies that refer back to World War I, show World War I in a very patriotic light. It's a very, very American is the arsenal of democracy. America is this, you know, the United States, Wilson's, uh, you know, protecting liberty around the world, democracy around the world, and there's a lot of flag waving. And what you don't get in any of that is that basically half the country was in vehement opposition to that war in 1917 from April, you know, from January to April ish of 1917, one of the worst insults you could hurl at someone was to be a German Kaiser lover. You basically called them what now we would call a Nazi. Um, it, it's kind of intriguing to me the way history has repeated itself. Now we call people Nazis in 1917. You called them Kaisers. Kaiser lovers, whatever Huns was uh, was a big one, uh, but half the country was dead set against that war, and the United States government started throwing people in jail for their anti-war activism opposing World War One. So this is nothing new, and that was kind of a, a historical detour to get back to this guy in 1812, who decided that he did not like the concepts, and a lot of people didn't like the idea of the War of 1812. A lot of people felt like it was Mr. Madison's war. We've talked about that in the past, where the idea that, and this was one of the first occasions of Congress giving up its war powers in, in, to a degree. I mean, they did declare war, but they put all the pressure on Madison to make a finding. So 
there were a lot of people who thought that this war was a bad idea. In fact, most of your non-mercantile communities were not real happy about the concept of the War of 1812, the fighting another war against England. And again, even today, there's a great documentary called The Second American Revolution or something like that. It was on History Channel a few years ago and, and commemorating the, the War of 1812. And, you know, we see it as a very patriotic war. We kicked Britain's ass twice. Uh, when we were back in the Navy days, you know, we wear the jumpers. And on the back of the jumper, there are two stars. Did you know that? And that's the tradition is that when when an English sailor asks you why there are two stars on the back of your jumper, you tell him because we kicked your butt twice and there's a lot more room back there. And it's just one of those things. But what we don't get is that there was a great deal of anti-war resistance. There were people who thought that this war and this guy thought it was bad. He didn't show up for the militia, even though he's called up by Pennsylvania. They charged him and convicted him. And then a few years later, case actually goes to court in, in 1820. Um, a few years later, the feds charge him with the same thing. And, of course, this makes its way to the Supreme Court of the United States, where the Supreme Court is asked, is this double jeopardy? How can a man be convicted of a crime in Pennsylvania and then the federal government turn around and do it again? Doesn't this meet the very definition of what the Constitution says? nor shall any person be subject for the same offense, same offense, to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. Well, the court had to look at this, and this is pre-14th Amendment. So it's actually a little bit simpler in their era than it is in our era. Why? Because pre-14th Amendment, there's no incorporation, there's no, there's not even, this is post uh Actually, it's pre-Baron, but the, uh, there's no misunderstanding. There's no argument that the federal constitution applies to the states. They are seen as separate sovereigns. They are seen as the state is sovereign and the federal government is sovereign. Right? You, you follow what I'm driving at here? There's dual sovereignty, as it were. And consequently, the court rules, how can this be double jeopardy? Even as far back as you go in English law, the, the, the double jeopardy that we hold dear to our hearts. Uh, it's interesting to me that, you know, we talk a lot about the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, those kind of things, and, and how near and dear they are to American hearts. And we constantly talk about them because we constantly feel like they're under threat, don't we? We constantly feel like the government is trying to limit our free speech. We constantly feel like... Facebook is trying to limit our free speech, and so we have to have those discussions. We have, we, we have these conversations about the Fourth Amendment and our right to be free of searches and seizures, uh, unreasonable searches and seizures, and what does that mean? And, you know, every week I, I get a list of cases from the circuit courts. These are not the Supreme Court. These are the, you know, before it gets to the Supreme Court, if it goes that far. And invariably, invariably, there is at least one, and usually more, Cases dealing with the Fourth Amendment's search and seizure stuff and unreasonable searches and seizures where police officers have kicked in a door or they didn't get a warrant or they didn't do this or they didn't have exigent circumstances. Invariably, that's in there. And so we're constantly talking about these things. And so we tend to think of them as the most precious, you know, when we when we're putting them in the pantheon of what we regard most highly. It's easy to see where the First and Fourth Amendments really get in there. But really, this Fifth Amendment prohibition against double jeopardy is so deeply ingrained in us that I don't, sometimes we don't even think about it. We really don't. It has been a part of our laws. It has been a part of our Constitution. Prior to that, it was in every state's Constitution. And prior to that, it was in every version of English law that you can come up with. But what was the difference under English law and the American Constitution. Well, under English common law, you had one sovereign. Der King, you know, the guy that spoke German, King George, or whoever it ended up being. But the, the point was you had a sovereign. And so now comes along this Constitution of the United States, and you have this federalist system, which is dual in nature and sovereign in nature. 
The states are referred to as sovereign states. The federal government is referred to as sovereign. So you have dual sovereigns. You have two different systems here that are operating in parallel, and yet at the same time, somewhat limited in the same way. Pennsylvania obviously already has in its constitution a dual jeopardy clause. The feds have that dual jeopardy clause. And here's this guy standing in the middle going, wait a minute. You can't, it says right here in the Constitution of the United States, you can't do this. No man shall be put in jeopardy, twice in jeopardy, of life or limb. And you're going to take my life and limb away from me. You're going to put me in jail for essentially protesting the war of 1812 by refusing to report. He didn't go to Canada, I guess. He just uh, He just refused to report. And how do you think the court looked at this? Well, in looking at double jeopardy, you've got to look at some some ideas here. This the verbiage of the of the Fifth Amendment's prohibition against this is problematically mm, syntax. It has some syntax issues that that to us today really can create some difficulties. It didn't in 1787. That's the part you need to understand. In fact, in 1787, again, so deeply ingrained in this, in, in our ideas, was it that, that there really wasn't any debate that it should be there. The problem was that they didn't, they didn't think it was strong enough the way it was worded initially. The way it was worded initially was, no person shall be subject, comma, except in cases of impeachment, comma, to more than one punishment or trial for the same offense. And you had people like uh, Benson and Sherman who, who did not like that wording. They thought that that wording wasn't strong enough. In fact, they thought it was problematic because it would allow someone to be tried who, who, who had been improperly convicted to not receive a new trial on the same offense. And so they thought, well, that'll be a problem. Others said that it was just declaratory of the laws that now stood. They... They they argued over it, but ultimately they accepted the wording as it was. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. And that pretty much stood in keeping with what we understood our laws to be and what we understood our traditions to be. And again... It's precious enough to us that we kind of take it for granted. We don't really need, we don't really feel the need to argue about it because, well, like this man in 18, whatever it was, decided that, (laughs) how can you try me twice for this? How can you put me on trial twice for the same offense? How can you do that? The, the court had to really consider this. And again, as I said, because there's no incorporation it's pretty much a clear-cut case of dual sovereignty, and that's kind of what the court concluded, was that, look, the state can prosecute you, and we can prosecute you, and that's pretty much it. You, as an American citizen, owe your sovereign, owe your loyalty to two different sovereigns. You chose to do that. You could leave if you want. And so, we're going to do this. We're going to put this out there. The law is constitutional in Pennsylvania because Congress had not forbidden the states to enact such laws. Under Article 1, the states are not limited to passing law. There's no prohibition against the states saying, if you don't show up for militia duty, we will punish you. Right? And in that era and in that time, that's how the states raised their militias. They, They did those things and off they went. The second problem comes in, though with this idea of what does it mean to be put in jeopardy of life or limb, right? Does that mean that this only applies to cases where we are going to execute someone or cut their arms off? Well, we've never had, we've never really never had laws in this country, certainly not post-colonial era, where we would chop people's hands off or we chop people's limbs off. And it, it, it was sort of a generalized phrase that while it has meaning, it was more of a meaning that was mm, kind of ethereal in some ways. The court recognized early on that the clause could not be read literally. 
it refers only to jeopardy of life or limb, which is a reference that makes sense when most serious offenses were sanctioned by capital punishment. But today, most serious offenses are not sanctioned by capital punishment. Very few are, and even those that are, aren't carried out. So does the case, does it apply to just capital punishment cases, or does it apply to any case? Does it apply across the board? We we had to look at those things, and we had to consider them, and of course, we, we, we had three basics in here. No second prosecutions for the same offense after an acquittal. So in other words... If you are acquitted of a crime, a la, let's pick, just pick one, O.J. Simpson, you can't retry that. Even if more evidence shows up, he's already been acquitted. If he's found guilty, however, and upon appeal, it's shown that there's reason to do so, they can retry that case for that. So there you have that. No second prosecution for the same offense after a guilty verdict. If we find him guilty, you can't retry him and punish him again. And, of course, no multiple punishments for the same offense. It seems pretty straightforward, like I said. It's, it's one of those things that seems like we're, it makes sense to us. We, we're used to it. We don't think about it much. And then we, we're a little bit surprised when it comes up later on in discussions, as it has kind of throughout the history of the United States. It started, like I said, in 1820 with this. In 1922, which is an interesting period of our history, there was a man here in the state of Washington who was found guilty of violating the state's prohibition against the production and distribution of alcoholic beverages. So think about this. The state of Washington has a law that says you can't make or sell alcoholic beverages. Well, he was found to do so, which is not a big surprise because, again, civil disobedience is is pretty much the American way. And let's face it, moonshine is, well, it's it's popular. It's not my personal favorite, but, you know, a lot of people liked it. Bathtub gin and the likes of that. And so he was convicted under the Washington State Prohibition Law and sentenced to punishment. And then the feds stepped in shortly after that and charged him with the same violations of the same crime under the Volstead Act, which, of course, was the national version of prohibition. Like uh, the Pennsylvania man before him, he protested, claiming that this was a violation of his Fifth Amendment, and it essentially amounted to double jeopardy. But now we've got a little bit different situation. We've got the 14th Amendment in place. We have this idea of incorporation that is starting to build, and in fact... Eventually, the prohibition against double jeopardy will be incorporated against the states, but this is more about that dual sovereignty idea. How can we charge a man for the same crime twice in keeping with the Constitution? Well, in this case, the court comes to the same ruling. They come to the same idea, which is that it's dual sovereignty, folks. You you live under a system in which you live under a state law and a federal law, and if you do something that violates both of those laws, you're going to be subject to punishment by both. And in fact, there's actually a pretty interesting paragraph in the ruling where the judge talks about the fact that this is part of your responsibility as a citizen. You chose to live here. This is your decision. You you owe this allegiance to both of these forms of government, both the state Republican government and the federal Republican government. And so consequently, when you do something that, you know, you know is in violation of both of those, because, again, I, I, I doubt seriously that in 1922 anybody could claim that they weren't aware of the Volstead Act prohibition. It's possible that you might not be aware of your state's laws on it, but there's no way you didn't know about prohibition. If you do something that's in violation of both of those, well, ignorance of the law is no excuse, and dual sovereignty, QED, off you go. And this has continued throughout our history. This comes up every 10 years or so before the court. It comes up as a discussion about whether or not a person being charged under a federal law and a state law, or a state law and a federal law, is facing double jeopardy for the same offense. And the same argument keeps occurring. This is double jeopardy. This is double jeopardy. And the court keeps responding the same way. It's dual sovereignty. It's dual sovereignty. But as the nation has grown, and as 
laws have become voluminous to the point where practically nobody knows what's in them anymore, there has begun to be an argument that, in essence, this is double jeopardy. Because even though it's dual sovereignty, and even though we all understand the concept of dual sovereignty, the problem is that how do you stop a state from passing mirror laws of everything that's in the federal laws, and vice versa, the feds from passing mirror laws of every state, and thus essentially, you know, potentially, uh, taking somebody out twice for what is, this, again, the same offense. How do, you, how do you stop them from doing that? It, and it's becoming more and more complicated. It's becoming more and more difficult for the individual person to sometimes know where the line is. But it's also intriguing to me, and this is something that I've, that I've noticed here, is that this, this dual sovereignty argument is clearly, on the political spectrum, it's clearly a conservative argument because it is, it's a Tenth Amendment argument. It really is. Dual sovereignty. The states are sovereign. The federal is sovereign. And we can pass a law that says the same, the same thing if we want to or we don't have to. We're starting to see this with abortion around the country. We have the trigger laws. We have some states that are saying, well, even if there's a national law that says it's against the law, we're going to have a state law that is marijuana laws. Nationally, marijuana is against the law. But on your state level, maybe it is and maybe it ain't. Kind of depends on where you live. And under dual sovereignty, well, you can see where it's getting confused, right? You can see where things are getting a little hinky with all this. And so there's more and more building this idea that the court needs to, once and for all, decide whether dual sovereignty is constitutional or not. Now, again, on the political spectrum, I would argue that's a conservative argument. So you would expect conservatives to be against it. You would expect conservatives to stand up and go, no, dual sovereignty is good because, you know, states rats. You would expect that, wouldn't you? And like most things, it doesn't always turn out the way you would expect. It's half-ass. It's the Dave Bowman Show, Constitution Thursday, back right after this. This is the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. You are listening to The Dave Bowman Show on the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. I, Dave, Constitution Thursday episode of the show. Yeah, I know there's other stuff going on. I, I get it. My good buddy Brian Brody. Undergoing a procedure this morning. Brian's been a, a good friend of the show for a long time. He does his own uh, he does his own internet radio show. The life of me, I can't. Unleashing your bold? No. The life of me, I can't remember the name of his show right now. I'm just having a complete block. That's how flustered I am this morning. Anyway, Brian's having a procedure. Brian had a brain tumor some years ago, and he's having leakage problems with spinal fluid into his brain, and so he's having a procedure this morning. So that's the other text that I'm waiting for is that that went well. I recommended they use duct tape, but I'm sure they have a better option, right? Anyway, Brian, I hope you're feeling better, and I hope you get back to your real soon. Brian's one of those guys that he has completely reinvented himself. For those of you who don't know, Brian, the first time Brian was on the show, he was on because he was a survivalist specialist. And you, you've probably seen his commercials. I guarantee if you watch Fox News, you've seen his commercials, where they talk about you know things are going to happen and things are going to go bad, and then there's this, this guy walking through this wasteland. That's Brian. And he's talking about the food you need to have and... Stuff like that. And that used to be Brian. Brian, he used to go out and survive things. He, he is a guy that intentionally put himself in an avalanche once. Just because he wanted to see if he could survive it. 
And he did, obviously, and he would teach people to survive. And we had him on the show talking about how to how to survive situations, and and, and I, we really hit it off, and we became really good friends. Anyway, after his brain tumor, he really became interested in what I would call metaphysical sciences, and so he has completely reinvented himself now, and he does a show about his brain and your brain and living, unleashing your brain power and becoming all that. Anyway, he's having a procedure this morning, and that's got me a little flustered, too, because Brain tumors are not something to, to to mess around with. We're talking about the Fifth Amendment's prohibition against double jeopardy. And whether or not it is double jeopardy, if you get charged as a federal crime for the same thing you did as a state crime and, and can both do this. Now, what you need to understand is that under current doctrine, now this is important, under the current understanding, the way things are done, the current kind of federalist agreement, if you will, if I can use that term, the 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 general per, the general procedure is while it's not prohibited to do so the federal government usually usually doesn't do so unless there are special circumstances so a a a, a recent example i say recent but it's man has it been that long 91 that's almost 30 years ago, right? The the Rodney King officers trial when they were acquitted by the jury there in Simi Valley, the Fed stepped in and brought their charges under civil civil rights laws for the same act and and were able to get a conviction. And this happens I would say most often in that area where an acquittal is read to be I I hate this terminology, but it's it's true, where it's read to be politically un, incorrect where we assume that the jury got it wrong in a, in a racial-type scenario, and so the feds will step in and retry the case under federal law. And, of course, they have far more resources and far more ability to select a jury that uh, is consistent with what they want, and consequently they tend to get their convictions based on that. And this is seen, in a lot of ways, this is seen as good because this – this allows, again, for dual sovereignty. It allows the state to handle things, and then the feds come in and fix it, as it were, if if something isn't right. But again, you're still going to get the argument of double jeopardy, and you're still going to get the argument that, well, this is this is a problem, right? This is still seen as an issue in all of this. But the current doctrine, the current tradition, the current operation of the federal justice system is to be satisfied by the state's prosecution of something. And in general, not always, but in general, the states have taken the same approach, which is that if a federal prosecution results in some sort of punishment, some sort of decision, an acquittal, whatever, we will accept that verdict and and, and move on. Not always. It, it's not, there's no absolutes here because... Well, there's a lot of reasons why. I mean, it's a very a trial is a very expensive thing. When you're when you're dealing with stuff like this, you're almost at the point where you know, is it really worth it to go after that? But in cases, it's happened. In 2015, a man by the name of Gamble was driving his car in in the state of Alabama as a convicted felon. 9 years before that, he had been convicted of some drug offenses, and he got pulled over. He got pulled over because he had a burnout headlight, and so the the officer stopped him as, you know, again, it's that is a reasonable stop. And as he discovers that the man is a is a not a wanted felon, but a, an ex-felon, that gives him the probable cause that he needs to search the vehicle. Plus, he smells marijuana. Dun, dun, dun. And uh, the guy appears to be a little out of it. Probable cause, we've got the circumstances we need, and so he searches the car. And he finds in the car a 9mm handgun along with some drugs and some other stuff. But primarily what the, the issue here is a 9mm handgun. The man whose name is Gamble is a convicted felon, and now he is in possession of a firearm, which we all know, I think. I, I don't think you'd have a whole lot of argument. I, I, I have yet to meet the person of reasonable age who doesn't understand that if you're a convicted felon, 
Thou shalt not. In fact, I'm pretty sure they sit down with you when you're a convicted felon, and one of the things they tell you before they let you go is you cannot have a firearm. In fact, I know they do that because they go over those things with you before they just let you walk out. So there's no way that Gamble didn't know that he couldn't have one. And he did. State of Alabama reacted, as you would expect, to this quite negatively, and they put him on trial as for violating their laws against convicted felons with handguns and, and firearms in general. He was found guilty and sentenced to a certain amount of time in prison for his violation. Now, you might think that's where the, the story would end, but of course it wouldn't be because we wouldn't be talking about it if it did. The feds now step in and they too charge him with the same crime because it is also a federal crime for a convict to have a firearm. Now, I don't really know what the circumstances were that caused the feds to do this. I Again, it's usually very unusual circumstances. Usually the feds are satisfied with this, and they let it go. Okay, But for some reason, in this particular case, they have a particular dislike of Mr. Gamble or a particular problem with Mr. Gamble, or they, they just want to make an example, whatever it is. And under the dual sovereignty agreement and doctrine under the dual sovereignty idea, they step in and also charge Mr. Gamble with the same crime. And, of course, convict him. And they sentence him to time as well. So now he's got two sentences, state and federal, for the same crime. Being a felon in in possession of a handgun. Mr. Gamble has decided that this seems unfair. I mean... How would you feel at this particular point? The, to me, somewhat, the somewhat capricious nature by which the feds engage in, you know, dual, dual charges on the crime, make it questionably constitutional. In other words, if Congress passed a law that says, where there's dual sovereignty, however, comma, in the case of a conviction... We will, not, we will not allow the federal government to bring charges. I don't think you could do it for acquittals because then you would see, you, you, see, you see why it's such a fine line, right? You'd have the situation like you had in Simi Valley where the, where the Rodney King cops were acquitted. And if the feds just passed a law saying there's no, there's no dual jurisdiction, there's no dual sovereignty, that would have been the end of it. So it, it, it's really difficult to do. But the nature by which the, the, the federal government sometimes, most of the time, virtually all the time says, that's okay, we'll let it go, versus the times where they say, no, we're going to come down on this guy, makes it seem a little uncomfortable to people. Add to that the fact that, again, laws have become so voluminous. Most people have no clue, for the most part, what even totally is against the law. I mean, there's articles out there on the web. You can look them. You can look them up yourself. It's on the internet. The, the, the talk about the fact that how many how many laws Americans break every day because they don't even know. They have no idea that it is a law. And when you you factor in the regulatory state on top of that, I mean, how many things do we do every day that break? A law, whether that's a state law or a federal law, or in some cases, many cases, both. And doesn't it seem like the framers, the people who wrote the Constitution, the people that that understood the idea of dual sovereignty, that, that understood the idea of double jeopardy to a degree variant in, and, and, and again, under, also understood it because the states have rules against it. Maybe they never really contemplated the idea that the feds would ever go to the point where they would start charging people with crimes that they had already been convicted of in state courts. I I have to believe that they didn't think that because otherwise, maybe they did. Yeah, Buster says in the chat, we don't even know what a catch is in the NFL. You're right. I mean, we don't we don't know. And this becomes problematic. And so... The court is looking at this case with Gamble. This court, this this particular case has made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Sir, it was granted. This case is on the docket and will be heard by the Supreme Court when it begins its session in 2018, October. In fact, if I recall the calendar right, it's one of the early cases. I don't remember 
should you know like i said it's been a very flustering day it, i i think it's one of the one of the early cases that they're going to hear and the single question is should the doctrine of dual jurisdiction should the dual sovereignty doctrine be done away with that's it the court has since 1820 upheld this dual sovereignty doctrine every case that's come before it in the idea of double jeopardy the court has upheld the concept of dual sovereignty Remember the art. Remember the articles about. <laughs> remember, the, remember the articles about settled law. Law is never settled, folks. It never is. It cannot be. Just like science, it can't be settled. It's not possible. Because if it is, you've got a problem. If it is, Mister Gamble has no case. And indeed, next Monday when the court opens, thanks, Pat. Um, one of the cases they will consider is this Gamble case. And the simple question, the single question, the number one question is, the only question in the case is, should dual sovereignty be overturned? There are arguments that are compelling on both sides of it. It's not in keeping with the concepts and with the traditions of double jeopardy and what that means. Federal law has become too complicated, um, you know, it's expensive. There, there are any number of arguments for it. But the thing I need you to, what I see in this, again, the pro-dual sovereignty idea is really, it's really a conservative idea. It really is. I mean, on the political spectrum, I don't mean in the terms of, but, but if you were looking on the political spectrum, left, right, center, this dual sovereignty idea would certainly lean to the right. It certainly the states have to have the the sovereignty to do these things. And yeah, we'll allow the feds to do stuff, but but the states have to have it. And so you would have to argue that it's a it's certainly a politically right value in all of this. And so you would expect the political right to look at this case and go, yeah, we want to uphold the doctrine of dual sovereignty because that's what we're about. Right. Tenth Amendment states rights. One of the interesting sidelights of all of this, and, and my intention specifically today was to avoid a very specific topic, and you can probably guess what that topic is. But in recent days, and this is recorded September 27th, 2018, if you're listening downstream, in re- at, at 1049 a.m. Pacific time, so we don't know the results yet. In recent days, we've watched the debate over the nomination of a Supreme Court justice. And while the debate has raged around things such as abortion, gay rights, women's rights, and so forth, the single fact remains that those things are rarely, very rarely, the meat and potatoes of what the Supreme Court does. Almost never are the things that they do do noticed until after the fact. And indeed, very few, if any of the questions asked of the nominees, relate to them or the understanding of how those things will end up affecting our day-to-day lives. Now, again, I think rightfully so, Supreme Court nominees refuse to answer hypothetical questions about how they would rule, and I don't think they should. I think Justice Ginsburg is absolutely correct in that. But very few of the questions probe viewpoints about things that that aren't, you know, the big the big issues. Are you going to overturn Roe v. Wade? How do you stand about gay rights? What do you stand on? We, we never get into things that really are going to be done on the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court, you'll recall, maybe you won't recall, I don't know, is a trial of law. Now, there are two types of trials. There are two types of, of, of courts. View. A court of, a, a trial court. You ever wonder why they have that phrase, trial court? There's a trial of of fact and a trial of law. So in other words, when you go into your local courtroom or when you go into courts, you know, at a lower level, they are trying facts. Did this happen? Did they do that? Did this say this? Did he or she do this or go there? Or, you know, what is it? The Supreme Court and, in fact, the district courts to a to a, to a great degree are limited to courts of law that they look at the applicability of the law itself. They don't look at the facts per se, because the facts have already been determined. And if you read the briefings and the final rulings, 
They'll lay out the facts for you, and then they'll dis- they'll discuss how the law applies to those facts and whether the law was properly applied or not applied, and that's what we're talking about here. So the Supreme Court is being asked to look at the dual the dual sovereignty doctrine and decide whether that doctrine is constitutional or not, whether that doctrine, whether that practice of the federal government and to some to a lesser degree the state governments meets. The incorporated idea of double jeopardy, right? Okay. Now, why does this matter? What, Mr. Gamble's case? I mean, do you really care whether Gamble goes to jail for six years or fifteen years? What do you do? You really care that much? Is it going to affect your life at all, in any way, shape, or form? The answer is probably not, unless you're a relative of Mr. Gamble or depending on Mr. Gamble for some particular thing or place or, you know, whatever. The reality is, and most of you probably have never heard of Mr. Gamble until I brought up his name. It's one of those things that doesn't really ring your bell, and yet the court's looking at this going again. I mean, think about this for just a moment. This is an established doctrine, has been since 1820. And now the court has decided on the basis of this one guy pulled over in Alabama that they want to hear this case and only decide whether or not dual sovereignty is constitutional or not. And as it stands right now, if the case were heard today and probably even Monday, you'd have to guess that it's going to be a 4-4 split, right? You would, you would have to, it's either going to be 8-0 or 4-4. I could find ideas to make it 8-0, and I can find ideas to make it 4-4. But the wild card in all of this is Judge Kavanaugh's nomination. How do you think Judge Kavanaugh, based on his record, would see the, the concept of dual jeopardy? Anybody have any idea on that? Anybody willing to take that risk? Remember, if it's 4-4, the, the concept of dual jeopardy stays in place. If it's 8 nothing, it stays in place. One person could make the difference in this concept of dual jeopardy, couldn't he? And why does it matter? Why, why does anybody really care? I mean, in the broad spectrum of things, does it really make that much sense to you? Orrin Hatch is a leading Republican senator, as you know, and you would certainly label him as a conservative, would you not? He's also on the Judiciary Committee that is overseeing the hearings of nominees to the Supreme Court of the United States. Orrin Hatch has filed a 44-page amicus brief urging the court to overturn the doctrine of dual sovereignty. His arguments range, again, from the expense involved to, to the fact that federal law has become so complicated and again, so capriciously enforced that it, it causes constitutional problems. If, if every case was done this way, if, in other words, if every conviction under state law that applies under federal law was then followed up by a federal conviction and every federal conviction was then followed up by a state law, probably don't have a problem. But because they're not, is his argument, it has to be unconstitutional, right? This, this use of special circumstances by the federal government simply amounts to a willy-nilly application of double jeopardy. Oh, we didn't like that result. We're going to get you kind of approach to things. Does that seem fair to you? Does that seem unfair to you? How, do you, how does that make you feel right now? Answer that question right now. Because waiting in the wings of the outcome of this case... sits a guy by the name of Paul Manafort. Right? And what has been the left's argument about Trump appointing a Supreme Court justice all along? That he's going to appoint justices that are going to find in his favor and blah, blah, blah. Along comes Senator Hatch. He files his amicus brief arguing that the dual... Sovereignty doctrine be overturned. And the concept, which is that the reason Trump has not pardoned anybody and not stopped the investigation is because 
of the dual sovereignty agreement. That is the dual sovereignty doctrine. That is that even if he pardons Manafort and others, the state of Virginia, the state of New York have already announced they're going to go after him. They haven't yet because there's no need to. But if they want to, they will. But if the court, with Justice Kavanaugh's seating, overturns that doctrine, doesn't that exactly play into what the left has been complaining about from day one? Something to think about. Rarely, by the way, are the real issues at play in these nomination hearings what they're talking about. Rarely is it what they're screaming and yelling about and putting on national television for you to watch. Usually it's something else. Something else that's going to have a bigger effect on how we do things in this country and what happens. And if you're attentive, if you're virtuous, if you're involved as a citizen, you see these things coming. I can make arguments for it either way. What do you think? Area code 209-565-DAVE is the text machine number. Email dave at the Show.com. And, of course, you can comment on Facebook, Twitter, and our page at thedavebowmanshow.com. i got to get running. Take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life you love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there. So don't pass up those opportunities. You don't want to have that regret. Plausibly live, I am Dave Bowman, and this is my show, The Dave Bowman Show, right here on the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. It's been Constitution Thursday. Today we look at the Constitution. We talk about what it means, what it says why it was written that way and how it affects us even today or by next June, depending on how they rule. Have a great day, everybody, and we will see you tomorrow, probably for a Friday episode of the Dave Bowman Show right here on Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. Make sure you check out all the great shows at podcast99.org. Tim's got the day off, so we will see you tomorrow, everybody. Bowman Show is a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. For more information or to complain about how the show offended you, the text or voicemail number is 209-565-DAVE. For more information about the show, log on to thedavebowmanshow.com. Hey, I'm going to go do something productive. I'm going to go watch television.